Tēnā koutou, I'm Karen Hay. In 2015, the New Zealand Society of Authors commissioned the most recent interviews in its 30-year oral history project. It's these authors who will be sharing their experiences in the third season of the NZSA Oral History Podcast. else is a New Zealand author and literary agent. Along with his own writing and promoting the writing of others, Chris has dedicated much of his life to advocacy work on behalf of New Zealand authors. He has served two different terms as President of the New Zealand Society of Authors and was also NZSA President of Honour in 2018. In 2015, Chris explained to interviewer Deborah Shepherd how he returned to New Zealand from London in the late 1970s and ended up joining Penn NZ. We finally, after a bit of toing and froing, settled in Wellington. So when we came to live in Wellington, um, that was during that would be during early 1977. And I got a job at the uh, managing the Victoria Book Centre, which was the university bookshop at Victoria University. Mm-hmm. <coughs> and one of the uh, people on the staff there um, was Meg Campbell, who was Alistair Tariki Campbell's. Uh, wife. Um, and through Meg I met Alistair and through Alistair I met a whole lot of other people in uh, the Wellington literary scene. Um, people like um, Alistair Patterson who is um, living here at that stage, Harry Orsman um, and uh, a number of people like that. And we used to drink at the Abel Tasman in um, hotel which was on the corner of um, Dixon Street and Willow Street. And it was Alistair who suggested that I join Penn as it was then. Um, and, um, and it just seemed like a natural thing for you know, a writer, an aspiring writer to do. Um, and then when I, you know, when I became, uh, when I, my first book was published, my collection of short stories in 1981, I um, was then a fully-fledged member, but I became a full member on the basis of the short stories I published. Uh, and they were the short stories um, which became Dreams of Pythagoras, right. stories I'd been writing since about 1970. And you'd published these in And they'd been published in Landfall, Landfall. Um, in particular, but also in a number of um, other uh, journals and magazines. I mean, you know, I, at that stage I was... Um, Obviously, someone with some organisational experience. I'd, um, I'd managed uh, the New Zealand office of a publishing company back in the early 70s before you we went overseas. What was that? I was uh, Holt, and Winston, was the American academic publisher. I mean, when I say managed, I, I, there, there were two reps and, a, and, a, and a, uh, an office person, so it wasn't mm-hmm. exactly a big organisation, mm-hmm. but I was the senior sales rep. Um, so I think um, Alistair had it in mind that I was going to be president. He was lining me up for, to be president. Um, but I wasn't ready for it at that stage. Um, but I did serve on the um, national executive for uh, about a year. Mm-hmm. Um, and Michael King was then the president uh, at that time. And um, Others on that, I can't remember who else was on National Council. Alan, Alan Loney was one. 
Laurie Edmund was certainly yes. involved. I think she is. I'm not quite sure who who there were. Alistair was involved. Um, but as I say, I wasn't really. I mean, I was I was happy to be a member, but that's all I wanted to be yeah. at that stage. Mm -hmm. And Penn at that point was a. Um, suffering a little bit from, I suppose, internal stresses, you would have to say. Um, there were two main centres of uh, the organisation. One was the National Council, which was in Wellington, and the other was the Auckland branch. Mm -hmm. um, and <clears throat> it was at, had reached the point where the Auckland branch was bigger than, you know, in terms of uh, membership, was bigger and more active and more politically no, just bigger and more active, I suppose, than Wellington was. Um, so there was a sense that, um, well, from the Wellington point of view, that the tail was trying to wag the dog, um, and <clears throat> from the Auckland point of view, that they were lumbered with these people in Wellington who wouldn't, wouldn't really do what they wanted to do. And um, <clears throat> so a lot of tensions, um, which were partly to do with the fact that there was not the financial resources to set up um, a national, properly nationally organised organisation. And so I, I um, as I say, I, I, I was in, involved in that sort of way and, and um, attended meetings and so on, um, but I didn't uh, take much part in it beyond that. There was uh, this uh, business of this tension really came to a head in um, around about 1988 it would have been 1988, I think, um, and they had a, there was a, a national um, conference um, at which the people from Auckland, um, which who included yes, uh, I was going to ask people like, people like um, Kevin Island and yes, um, Kevin Island in particular, and Carl Stead, um, who also there, there would have been um, Michael King was he with it. Yes, Michael King would have been uh, there then, at that stage. Gordon McLaughlin? Uh, no, no, Gordon wasn't really oh. active at that stage. Gordon, Gordon wasn't active until he really became president. He was the president after my first term. The, the meeting essentially decided that the, the situation which pertained at that point wasn't working and that um, we needed um, a truly representative National Council. You couldn't pretend it was a National Council when everybody on it was from Wellington, uh, which is the way it was. Well, the president at that, at that point was Rosemary Wildblood. There had been some back, back, um, groundwork done in, in terms of establishing, uh, broadening the base and establishing the organisation on a, on a na truly national footing. And at this meeting, it was decided that um, that the whole thing had to be reorganised. Yes. Um, now, I wasn't involved in um, the act. I wasn't um, part of the National Council still at that stage, but we were quite actively involved in those discussions and, and obviously agreed with all that. Mm. Um, I can't remember who the first president at that point was. Can we just roll back one, one step? Yep. I want to ask you, um, when you went along to a pen meeting in those days at the beginning, what happened at a pen meeting? Well, it depended. Uh, I mean, it, it, there was a, there was business tended to be around. It was um, not like it is today. I mean, today you get quite a lot of um, 
people, guest speakers, talking about various aspects of the writing business. So you might have someone talking about digital publishing or um, uh, a writer who, um, a prominent writer talking about their career or whatever. Uh, back then it was purely business. Mm -hmm. So it was... Um, was it social it, too though? Oh yes, it was social. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, I mean, the whole point really was, um, not the whole point, but at least part of the point was the drinks after the meeting as much as the meeting itself. But I mean, it was it was about um, uh, politics. It was very. Uh, I mean, now it's much more care careful about taking stands on political matters mm -hmm. which aren't immediately concerned with think issues like freedom of speech and those sorts of things, or issues which aren't don't directly affect writers. For example, there was a. Um, uh, a meeting in 1981 at which um, uh, was talking all about the Springbok tour and taking right. a stand on that and passing resolutions which condemned it and I think at that stage um, Robert Muldoon uh, uh, Robert Muldoon was a member and he, he was actually thrown out of the society because of How did he get to be a member? Oh he'd published a book. Had he really? He's written a book, yes. What was it? I can't remember what it was now, but it was some. And what was it about? Oh, about himself, I think. Mm. Was, was yeah. it suddenly something called the Confessions of a Young Turk, or it was oh, okay. yeah. something along those lines? I don't, I, <clears throat> I don't really, really recall. So we were never afraid of, of sort of um, getting stuck into, um, you know, an issue of politics and uh, the, mm. the 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 um, the whole uh, tenor of the organization was, was left-wing and um, that was sort of uh, entirely uh, something I was entirely sympathetic with at that stage I, um, I was um, you know I was I, I'd been reasonably radicalized in the 70s in political terms um, anyway see um, I don't know whether whether uh, Kevin was the first president after that reorganization or the second but um, in 19 let me think now I think it was 1990 um, he suggested that I stand for National Council as vice president and as Alice had done many years before he had an eye on the fact that I might become president and this time I was you know, amenable to that possibility. Obviously, I had to be, um, um, you know, elected properly and so on. But mm -hmm. it, uh, it wasn't something. It was something that I thought, if the opportunity came, I'd quite like to do. So um, I joined. I, I was uh, elected uh, to be uh, as vice president. I think the mm -hmm. AGM was in Dunedin that year, mm -hmm. um, and <coughs> served for a year. I think it was a year in that capacity. Uh, and 91, then, 92. Yeah. Got here, yes. Yes, and then when Kevin uh, came to the end of his term, I um, I stood for president and I, I was elected. And the issues we were dealing with at that point were um, we were very concerned about um, two things really. We were concerned about uh, we were particularly concerned about what was called the literature fund. Yes. Um, and which was um, a, a 
a kind of a form of um, state patronage for literature, which was quite, quite separate from the Arts Council, the QE2 Arts Council mm -hmm. as it was. Mm -hmm. um, and it was part of internal affairs. And I think the Minister of Internal Affairs at that stage was John Banks. Uh, oh. And um, we felt that uh, Banks' politics weren't really um, conducive to uh, the security of the Lit Fund. We thought mm. he might exit. Um, and and there'd been one or two sort of hints about this. So we agitated for the fund and its funding to be moved to Creative New Zealand. And, we, and so that was the point at which um, literature began to be funded by Creative New Zealand. Now, I don't know whether that's really um, an ideal situation because I think that there are things about literature which don't fit awfully well with the arts and otherwise, but that's beside the point. Um, what would be better? I don't know. I don't know if there is anything better, really, but um, it's uh, there's still you know, a reasonable amount of dissatisfaction, I think, with the way that uh, Creative New Zealand handles it. But um, yeah. I think it's... Yeah, I, 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 I think it, it was certainly the right choice at the time, and I don't, as you say, I can't see anything better, really. There was then a question of um, how... Of course, it was still the QE2 Arts Council at that point right. when that happened. And shortly thereafter, I think it was 91, um, the Creative New Zealand itself was um, reorganised um, and it became, well, the Arts Council became Creative New Zealand at that stage. Um, and Claudia Scott was uh, part of the, the driver for that uh, change. Um, and one of the things that happened was we had um, Terry Sturm, who was, I think, the chair of the fund literature fund when it moved over, um, had sought guarantees that um, the Arts Council would maintain the uh, same organisation. So there would be a literature committee under the aegis of. Uh, uh, the Arts Council, who would look after literature and do uh, not only um, dispense, you know, decide where grants went, who grants went to, but all would also um, pro provide advice on policy. And the idea was that all these people should be um, writers, working writers, yeah. with a chair who was someone from uh, the Arts Council themselves. Mm -hmm. themselves. Uh, when that model, which was the one we wanted and mm -hmm. uh, which was kind of a condition for moving the, moving the, the fund, um, was, didn't fit in with the way that um, uh, Claudia Scott wanted to reorganise the Arts Council. And so we, um, we had a fight on our hands to actually maintain that. Um, and they tried something else and it didn't really work really well, so they went back to that. And now they've gone to and fro, and it's it's a kind of a uh, something midway between where it was, um, and I think it works okay. But there was there was a, a strong sense then that we didn't want literature to be absorbed into the Arts Council, uh, and the approach they had was um, there would be no committee. Uh, it would be a matter of one or two assessors looking at things and. Um, not talking to each other, mm. um, and because the theory was that um, 
the process could be captured by interests if in that with people talking to each other yes but i mean that that is i mean we all felt that was um, absurd really yes. that that it was much better to have me talking getting other people's opinions and um, having a discussion about mm. it so uh we um after some toing and froing it settled down into um, <clears throat> the literature committee continued uh, as it had been before or some variant mm -hmm. of it continued as before. And is it still like that today? Um, no, it's, um, it's a combination of the two. It's a halfway house between the two as I understand it mm -hmm. today. So that was, that was one campaign. Um, there was a, there's an ongoing campaign around the PLR, or PLR being public lending rights, mm. and in a similar way, we felt th that uh, that was um, in considerable danger too. Um, it was th the legislation which set up QE2. Um, we decided at that stage we would we wanted to move the authors' fund to QE2 as well. Um, and so we had a, a clause built into the legislation which said that there will be an author's fund and, it, and that's, this is the purpose of it. It was no more than that. But, and it was um, entirely um, temporary thing and the, the uh, QE2 was not the best place for it uh, because it's completely uh, contrary to their philosophy. Their philosophy is that, that know the money they dispense isn't an entitlement I mean the authors fund is an entitlement you're entitled to that because of to compensate for Loss the use of, of books in libraries um, yes. so it didn't it didn't sit at all well there but we felt that it would be better doing that than um, having it floating around in internal affairs where it had no legislative basis at all it mm -hmm. had only been it had been set up by cabinet minute way back under the Kirk government in the 1970s. Mm -hmm. So um, it would have been easy to, as a stroke of a pen to get rid of it. Mm -hmm. So um, there was some contro controversy around that decision to move it to QE2. A lot of people thought it was a bad idea. Um, and indeed, ultimately, it's been taken out of there again and established in its own right mm -hmm. under, the, um, under the National Library, which is much better. So I suppose the biggest the biggest issue uh, and, uh, under my first presidency would have been the name change. Um, there's always been a tension in the organisation between the pen activities, which are essentially a focus on freedom of speech and therefore an Amnesty International kind of mm -hmm. feel to it. That's the sort of, so there's an international lobby group for freedom of speech. Um, that side of it and the what you would call the professional organisation, writers' professional organisation, so being, being a, a trade union in the, in the broadest sense. Um, and in, in most countries, um, there are two separate organisations. Uh, there is a pen organisation which does one thing, and there's um, uh, oh. a society of authors, there's an Australian society of authors, an Australian pen, and the same right. in Britain. Um, but here the writing community was so small that PIN was set up under the kind of the, the international auspices of a, uh, a lobbyist for freedom of speech 
and there was really no scope for another organisation. Although I have to say that the um, the New Zealand Writers Guild split off from mm. Penn, and their focus was uh, essentially film and drama, yeah. script writing of various kinds. Uh, and the, the reason was that um, you know the the, the Writers Guild people felt that the focus was wrong. That they didn't they weren't interested in the Penn aspects in well. As individuals, they almost certainly were, but yeah. uh, for, they felt they needed an organisation which was focused on professional matters. And so there was always this tension. And in, in um, uh, I guess it would be 1991, um, Philip Temple was overseas in taking one of his sojourns in Berlin, and he happened to be in Europe, and he he went to a Penn uh, International Conf Conference or Congress, I think they were called. Uh, and um, he was pretty. He came back feeling pretty disgusted with what was going on in Penn. He felt it was a whole lot of people. Penn of, here? No, 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 not here. Oh, in, yeah. in, in in overseas. Right. So it was the Penn, the, the Penn mm -hmm. overseas that he objected yeah. to, or a lot of people sort of um, freeloading, swanning around, you know, eating and drinking, not doing very much. So he came back and. He didn't want to abandon the idea, the connection with Penn, and none of us did. Mm -hmm. uh, but he he proposed that we change the name so that it, we became clear that our focus yes. was uh, at least as much on professional matters as it was on um, the Penn type cultural and uh, political and uh, matters, uh, and at that um, AGM we voted. I can't remember what the resolution was quite, but it was certainly to the effect that we'd explore this. Um, <clears throat> there was a lot of opposition. I mean, Why it was would that be? Very clear that most members agreed with it, but there was a lot of very vocal and quite influential opposition. And the opposition came from... Uh, Michael King would have been the, the primary person, uh, the most prominent person who objected to it. Other people who did were um, Rene, um, mm -hmm. uh, Michael Morrissey was um, very much against it, and I think there were there were other people too. And a lot of the opposition was in Auckland; it was centred around Auckland. So it felt, you know, there was this the old tensions yes. were coming back, yeah. and we could see. Uh, the possibility of uh, it, it splitting the organisation, splitting again, or you know, um, mm. and what so, was their argument? Oh, tradition, essentially tradition, and and I think the um, the, the feeling that the um, the importance, in, which indeed is truly important, of the um, the political aspect yes. angle of the society and the fear that that would get lost mm -hmm. if the name was if the name was changed so we went through quite a long process of uh, canvassing branches it took us two years to be quite sure we had a consensus uh, and there was still some fairly fierce opposition and some fairly sneaky stuff went on uh, at one point Michael wrote to Penn in, um, we didn't tell Penn overseas what we were doing because we didn't know whether it was mm. going to work or not. Mm. So there didn't seem to be any point in um, 
alarming them and we thought it was and better to ask, ask forgiveness rather than permission. Pen uh, overseas, you mean like? London. London. Yeah, yeah. Inter Pen International. Mm -hmm. But Michael decided to write to them and tell them, so mm -hmm. we had to um, cope with that, which was uh, made things a little bit awkward, but anyway, we sorted it out. Um, but the other thing was that um, a group of them in Hamilton registered the name Society of Authors. Anyway, we found out about it and I confronted him over it and he, he agreed that it wasn't perhaps the most um, inclusive thing to do uh, and so they withdrew that. And that was my last, that AGM was when I ceased to be president and uh, Gordon McLaughlin took over at that. So I was the last president of Penn. Right. And Gordon was the first president of NZSA. Uh -huh. I'm Karen Hay and this is the New Zealand Society of Authors Oral History Podcast. We'll be back to the podcast in a moment, but we want to remind you about the important work NZSA does for all New Zealand writers through advocacy, professional development programs, information, competitions, awards, mentorships and advisory and consultancy services. NZSA is the professional organisation for New Zealand writers. It lobbies for fair reward for your work and for the protection of your copyright. Visit authors.org.nz to find out more about joining. In the early 1990s, Chris Alce served as the final president of Penn NZ, and during that term he helped transition the organisation to become the New Zealand Society of Authors. More than 10 years and a new century later, in 2006, Chris returned to the role. Deborah asked Chris what brought him back and what happened in the years in between. I was um, not involved at all for a few years. Um, Why was that? Is I noticed? Oh, you just get burnt out and you kind of, you know, you want to go away and relax and think about something else. And write your novel. <laughs> yes, I for had, example, write another novel. I yeah. had that, that I'd quoted from John Pascoe in the 1964 Pen Gazette saying, there's not much joy in spending a lot of time administering a writer's organisation instead of writing as such. Yes, exactly, exactly. Although I wasn't part of the, um, the organisation, officially, other than being a member of the Wellington branch, I started to kind of get involved in conversations about matters of policy and so on. Uh, and Bill said to me, he said, oh, well, you, why don't you become president? <laughs> You're kind of doing the job anyway. So, so I agreed. Um, and so that became my second um, stint as president. And we were, at that stage, we were still dealing with... Um, Authors Fund PLR yes. matters, that was yep. still one of our top priorities. The organisation had been set on a much more solid basis. We'd hired our first, um, Liz Allen, our mm -hmm. first, uh, first CEO, um, Bill, Bill was responsible for that, uh, and Liz did a huge amount for the organisation. She made a, made a big drive to gather in um, associate members um, because we felt that that was our best way of um, broadening the membership, which indeed then means securing 
the finances of the oh, organisation. True, true. Um, so I. From in my first presidency, I would think there were probably about three hundred members. Um, why in my second presidency we hit a thousand, um, and uh, it's grown since. It's about I don't know what it is now, but at least fifteen hundred. So she set up a number of programs to benefit associate members. Right. Things like mentoring programs, yes. getting assessments of manuscripts yes. done, and appraisals, and those kinds of things. Mm. Uh, services which are available only to members and so that that meant that the organisation was offering quite a bit to uh, associate members. Um, so it, it meant that the, the, the organisation had grown uh, and was continuing to grow uh, and it became clear that um, pre the structure that we had wasn't going to cope. There were two problems. The idea was that the chair of each branch, the National Council would be comprised of the chairs of each, all the branches. Yep. Uh, and we, National Council, met every two to three months. And we met here in Wellington. And so, uh, what the, and, and, you know, and these were the days before Skype and communications. And, yep. you know, we had email, but that's about it. Mm. Um, so that meant that the, the growing organisation was putting a financial strain on... Um, just get, getting the council together mm. and um, airfares and mm. accommodation and those kinds of things. Um, <clears throat> and the council itself was growing and becoming uh, um, cumbersome. The second problem was that um, the load of work on branch chairs was getting to be um, unworkable because not only were they supposed to run the branch and organise meetings and uh, chair meetings and um, develop programs uh, for branch meetings. They also had to serve on national council and deal with policy matters um, and you know work on all the all the various lobbying things what we were doing. So um, I decided that what we needed to do was to restructure the organisation to separate these two roles, mm -hmm. separate the branch chair from the. Uh, the regional representative role. And so we did a, a lot of work um, over, um, again, uh, the couple of years of my presidency to um, get an agreement as to what this structure should be and how it would work, And because it was a major change to the constitution. Um, and yeah, so uh, again, it was similar to the name change. It wasn't as controversial. Um, I, th I, th I was a bit frightened it was going to be as controversial really? mm. and there would be a lot of um, uh, objection to it, mainly on the grounds that um, the organisation would become um, would be becoming less less democratic. You know, it was it was weakening the link between national council and, and the branches. The idea being that um, uh, we could have as many branches as we liked and we could limit. National Council, the size of National Council, um, so we would we could have fifty branches and still have only six members of National Council. All those changes went through. I wanted to ask you how well you think the society advocates for writers. I think the the society has got better at that. I think the tension. I mean, this is this is part of the name change business that there is a a tension between a pen hat, which is focused, which has an essentially political spirit yes. and a, um, a professional organisational hat, 
and, 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 and that political spirit can be quite confrontational. Um, but don't you think you need that? You do. To galvanise. You do. To you do need it. To be but you also it. need, you also need um, a, a more cooperative approach. Yes. You know, I mean, in 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 the old days, Penn would have had nothing to do with the National Party. I mean, we have quite strong links mm. with the Labour Party, yeah. um, so it was quite partisan yes. in that sense. Well, you can't operate a professional organisation like that. Yeah, you have true. to be able to work with whatever yeah. um, Minister of Culture is uh, is uh, there. Um, so, that I, and I think that um, gradually over the last twenty years, that's you know that's happened. I think there's um, the group of writers around Victoria University. That that yeah. centre of literary culture is. Um, averse to probably any writer's organisation, I think. I don't think it's particularly NZSA. Right. There is an, an, an attitude, what does it do for me? Well, my answer to that is that I think that any writer that gets more than $500 a year out of the PLR um, and isn't a member of NZSA is freeloading. That would not exist in mm. New Zealand without Penn mm. in ZSA. It wouldn't, it wouldn't have happened without the agitation of people like Ian Cross back in the 70s, and it wouldn't exist now if it hadn't been for all the rest of us who have been working to preserve it over the years. Um, so there's a sense in which um, you know, all the writers in the country um, who are earning a reasonable amount of money out of it, they are freeloading. Mm. It has changed though, I mean, I, you go back um, when I first joined then you went through this exercise of saying uh, who, who might we interview for something like this and all your leading writers would have been members and a number mm. of them would have been very active members, the likes mm. of Maurice Shadbolt and Carl mm. Stead. But yes, so th there are a group of people I think who don't see it that way but I think that that's... Um, situation is reversing a little bit now. You see much more, many more um, young writers who are actually joining because they they do feel it's part of their, you know, their literary community. Just thinking, um, I was at the recent Auckland branch meeting and Bernard Brown made the comment that the, that the, the average age of people at the meeting would have been about 67 plus. Yes. And I was just wondering, is it the same here? Oh, it is the Older. same here. It is the Actually. same here. And a number of um, people who are wanting to write rather than actually have published yes, well or self-publishing. That is, a, the, that's a you know, that is a, that's a result of the increase in associate membership. Yeah. Um, and you see, I, I um, that was another reason for the constitutional change that I um, that I uh, drove for. Um, a few years ago, ten years ago, um, that branches could do what they wanted, and if um, if the branch consisted of associate members in their seventies, and they wanted to sit around talking about self-publishing, that was fine. They could do that, um, but then there would be scope for setting up other organisation or other um, groups within the society, within the, under the aegis of the society, um, and. That hasn't really happened. I think that's 
that's an opportunity to... Not all branches are like that. You go down to Dunedin, you'll find it very different. Okay. And you have a very business-oriented group down there. Um, but yes, I think there's, there's, there's more to be done there in, in um, refocusing or, or harnessing this. And I, uh, part, of the, part of the reason for the more recent um, questioning of the organisation was this recognition that um, this, the, um, to think that the society was only what happened at branches um, was to get an entirely wrong picture. Uh, and that modern communications would allow other sorts of arrangement, networks to be set up and so on. You've been listening to an interview from 2015 between Chris Else and Deborah Shepherd. Chris and Deborah had much more to discuss about his work as a writer and agent, so make sure you join us next time for part two of this interview. Don't miss an episode by subscribing to the podcast on SoundCloud or wherever you listen. This podcast was produced by Elizabeth Kirkby MacLeod with audio support by Yana Tanahu Owen for the New Zealand Society of Authors. NZSA would like to thank the Southern Trust for funding this season. Noturno by Ottorino Respigi, which you are listening to now, is performed by Justin Bird. I'm Karen Hay and this was a New Zealand Society of Authors oral history podcast. Kakite anō.